Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody, again, for joining us for this week's broadcast of Unhedged. And as always, I am pleased and honored and always have fun with Mr. Zenon Capron of Capron Asia. Zenon, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Frank. Great to be back. So you have been one busy, busy man uh, looking at your research that you've been putting out and, and the market commentary that you've been putting out. And I thought it would be interesting, given that next week is the FinTech Festival, I noticed that you're going to be speaking at a few of the events in addition to being an ambassador for the event. And the market right now, uh, in addition to the festivals, obviously very, very focused on the MAS Digibank licenses. And uh, to the degree you can, I thought it might be interesting for our listeners just to hear wh where you see the process now. Uh, and then maybe we can deep dive on each of them. And, and more importantly, the $64,000 question is, at what point here do you think the MAS will be announcing uh, who they're going to award the licenses to? Yeah, yeah. I think, it, I mean, certainly when you look at FinTech in Singapore, the Digibank licenses have been the story of 2020. Uh, and I think had we not had the COVID situation, we'd have a lot more clarity because those licenses would have likely already been allocated at this point. But I think... You know, generally, when we look at the MAS's approach for this, there are certain things that digibanks will be able to help resolve in China, but or, sorry, in Singapore, but Singapore doesn't face the key kind of financial inclusion challenges or points of friction that we have in many other markets where digital banks will really have a dramatic impact. I mean, as you compare financial inclusion here in Singapore, 98% of the population has access to a bank. Um, and many of those are able to access financial products and services from the bank, whereas you compare it to a place like Indonesia uh, or the Philippines, where the infrastructure isn't as good and the penetration just isn't as high. So the really the rationale behind digital banks is is much more to create competition in the marketplace here in Singapore. So I think there was no real upside to rushing the decisions on digital bank licenses, especially with all the uncertainty around COVID. And I think that's the approach that we've seen the MAS in particular take here in Singapore is just, you know, let's wait and see what happens and, and continue working through this process and, and then, you know, allocate the licenses when, when, we feel that it's it's good for the industry as a whole and Singapore as a whole. 
And is your sense that the the because part of what what's out there in the community is that folks are expecting some form of an announcement or update around the festival? Is, is, do you see that as consistent with your expectations, or, or do you do you see that maybe they might even delay it even further? I, you know, I've been speaking to a number of people about this. I think we'll see decisions in December. I'm not sure if we'll actually see it during the week of the fintech festival. I mean, there it, it, it's it's clear that. We're moving forward with digital banks in Singapore. You know, the, the government, there is, whether it happens this month or uh, next month or a year from now, you know, th those licenses will be allocated. I don't see a tremendous amount of upside for them announcing it during the Singapore FinTech Festival. It's it's almost because the, the market has kind of already absorbed the news that this is happening. So it, it might actually make more sense to do it the week after um, between the FinTech Festival and the holidays just to when everything has calmed down a little bit. But, you know, if it's, if it's going to happen this year, it's, it's going to be within the next uh, two and a half weeks, certainly, which is quite easy to say because there's only about three weeks left. But, uh, <laughs> you know, logically it would have to happen before the, the holidays that are coming up towards the end of the month. Good stuff. And, you know, and it's interesting since we last talked, I think that the, the, the big aha wake up moment or, or, or a systemic data point that came into this was obviously the news around uh, the anti-PO and, and some of the subsequent news coming out of China. And first off, what's what's your read on that in terms of, you know, the you know, some folks have been fairly cavalier and said, you know what, it was Jack Ma said a couple of things at a conference that was inappropriate. Uh, other folks have said, no, this, this was a discussion point internally with the regulator there for some time. Uh, what, what's your read on that with Ant, and, and what do you see as the repercussions of that across the region? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. There's been lots of speculation, as you mentioned, around the rationale behind that. I mean, fundamentally, if you look at that period of time, the only thing that changed from when the government started to announce um, or, or when Ant Group announced that it would be doing the IPO and when the IPO was put on hold were Jack Ma's comments. Uh, and so with that in mind, you know, with that being the only variable that changed over that period of time, you would have to assume that that had a large part to do with it. Uh, certainly a certain amount of that pushback would have been the regulators and the government as a whole being a little bit uh, not particularly happy with Jack Ma's comments on regulation and how regulation is, is moving in China. And, some of his points were fair, but some of them were a little bit um, unfair as well, in my mind. I mean, I, I think, you know, China's regulators have had their work cut out for them. You know, we, we have no other country around the world with 1.4 billion people where fintech has had such a huge impact. I mean, I, I think India is moving in that same direction. But, you know, China was largely leading the charge in fintech development in general and the adoption of fintech within the country. So, there's very little prior art to look at to say, okay, this is the correct set of regulations for this market. Uh, and, you know, okay, Basel may not be a good fit for that, fine. But, you know, to say the, the, the emphasis that Jack put on, you know, the government doesn't seem to have a direction on which the regulators are going was, was probably taken a little bit harshly on that. Um, the other side of things is, you know, this man has a history of doing what he says he's going to do, right? I mean, when he set up Alibaba, to connect the businesses around the world uh, to China, Chinese businesses. When he set up Taobao and Tmall to connect consumers to businesses and allow them to sell online. When he set up Ant Group, you know, to fill the gaps in financial inclusion and provide economic empowerment and democratization of finance to billions of people. Uh, so all of these things that he said, he's done. So, you know, if you're a betting man and you're, you're saying, well, you know, Jack isn't happy with the regulations, 
you may think that at some way he's going to try and address that through his business models. And and to be honest, we have we have seen that in certain ways. Uh, when we if you look at payments in China, the original idea was that uh, or the original way that it was implemented with Alipay was that Alipay created its own payment rails. So everything went across Alipay's platform. A couple of years ago, the government said, look, we want to have more visibility into the transactions that are happening. So they set up a platform called Nets Union or Wang Lian in China. So all of the digital payments have to be cleared through this platform. So, you know, dutifully, Alipay, WeChat Pay connected into the platform. But the other thing that they did was they, they, they started to really emphasize their Huawei platform, which is essentially their buy now, pay later platform uh, for online transactions. Now, the, the, the wrench in that is that the Huawei transactions don't have to go through this Wanglian platform because they're only netted at the end of the month. So, you know, the original purpose of this platform was to provide the government visibility into the transactions that were happening. But Alipay and Ant Group has kind of worked around that restriction by uh, setting up this Huawei, well, emphasizing this Huawei platform and, and pushing the transactions through that, therefore, you know, keeping control of the data and, and not really achieving what the government was looking for. So, you know, the company has a way of looking at the regulations in black and white and saying, okay, this is what we can do, this is what we can't do, and then working around that, obviously, to its, its advantage. Uh, so it, completely not surprising. Sorry, that was a very long answer to a short question, but the government's reaction and pushback is, is not surprising uh, with with certainly what's happened in the run-up to the IPO. How does that leave the MAS in this? I mean, Ant, Ant is obviously one of the, one of the potential uh, license holders on the SME side. So do, do you think the MAS is now thinking about this in their calculus as far as who they should award the license to? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Ravi Menon, I believe, in, in an article for Straits Times or it was covered by the Straits Times uh, earlier this week, late last week, was that, uh, you know, whatever's happening in China shouldn't affect our view of the digital bank licenses and applications in Singapore. But I, I don't see that as being realistic. I mean, you have plenty of cases where a company domestically in one market is really suffering and that that suffering affects their international business as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen that with numerous companies throughout the years. Uh, so for the MAS to completely disregard the situation of Ant Group, and, and to be fair, the other the other Chinese applicants as well, I mean, with Xiaomi and ByteDance both having parts of either consortia or uh, directly applying for the digital bank license, you can't neglect what's happening in their home markets uh, when you're looking at the viability here in Singapore. I mean, as I was mentioning before, I mean, there's no need directly in Singapore for digital bank. It's more about increasing competition. And the MAS overall wants to keep stability in the financial markets. And it's very difficult to do that if you have a company that's floundering in their domestic market, and that inevitably would affect their international operations. So you know, despite what was said in the press uh, over the last week, I, I truly believe that it will have some consideration and impact on their application, uh, even though it's happening relatively late in the application cycle. You know, and to your point, it's kind of interesting because if, if I, I heard people as well when they were reading the, the uh, news coming out of China regarding Ant and, and the comments made by the regulator and folks off the record were saying, you know what, the, the Chinese regulator actually sounds a lot like the MAS in terms of some of the issues that they they, they express concern on with Ant. And it, it, it really, 
you know, to your point, it augurs the question of, of with all that, how the MAS would be in a difficult position to, to make the award uh, when so much of what's coming out of China sounds like the MAS in terms of the, the issues that they want to protect against. And at the, then at the same time, if, if Ant was in fact to, to not have the award, and let's, let's put aside the political ramifications for that, how do you see, if, if we focus just on the, the three wholesale bank licenses on the SME side, how do you see that playing out relative to the consortiums that are there today that are publicly known? Well, I think, you know, when I look at what the opportunity is in both the retail and the wholesale market, I think certainly the, the wholesale, there's a lot more opportunity to provide additional value. I mean, the, the, the banking services that SMEs receive here in Singapore, and, and we are considered an SME here as well. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I was having trouble with my bank, um, our, our company bank, a month ago or so, and, and I gave them a call and they said, well, you need to get in touch with your relationship manager. And I said, relationship manager like I, i've never i've never met them i think it's a computer sitting somewhere in Chengi is my relationship manager and and so i think there's a lot of opportunity especially on the sme side to uh, address those challenges because there's a lot of there's a lot of fat in the current fees and transactions and and just the value add from the banks just isn't there on the retail side it's a little bit more difficult to see where the clear value proposition is going to be for the digital bank because in general, things work reasonably well. You know, if you have uh, a bank account with one of the big three banks, there are ATMs all over the place. You can use mm-hmm. PayNow. You know, I, I haven't touched cash. Only when I go down to the, the local hawker center to buy coffee do I touch cash. And, and most of the rest of the time, I'm using a card or PayNow to, to make these payments. So the retail side is fairly is fairly straightforward. I think that that is, um, you know, maybe not as much opportunity for the digital banks in that. But I, I clearly see on the SME side, I mean, I, I know for sure, speaking my own personal experience, the minute that we can, as a Singapore company, apply for a digital bank license, we will. Uh, just because, you know, as, as an SME, you, you don't get the attention, the fees, and and everything else that the larger companies get, and that it's really an un, underserved segment of the market. And that's just talking about account servicing. That's not even looking at lending or any of the more complex financial products or services. How would you handicap it now, given given uh, who's there and and who's been public on the SME side? Who do you so let's put Ant aside for right now. Uh, who would you see as the two to three constituents that are there that, that folks should be thinking about seriously? Well, I think overall, um, across all of the digital bank licenses, I mean, the, the, probably the most obvious one is Grab Singtel. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with obviously Singtel being um, you know, a, a company that's had a long history and very well respected in Singapore, that clearly seems to be a consortium that would make the most sense going forward. I think C is also interested, SEA, um, mm-hmm. just because of the relationship they have with the merchants, uh, you know, with with some of their e-commerce platforms and the work that they're doing, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. So those those in my mind would be kind of the two leaders in this space. Um, Ant Group is is interesting. I mean, obviously their, their uh, application will be slightly impacted by uh, what's happened or, or should likely be, but you know, their footprint in Singapore is not particularly large at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, although they have very good experience in working with uh, both SMEs and retail uh, in China, 
they're a bit unproven in foreign markets. Whereas, you know, I think with Grab Singtel and SEA, they have a little bit of a home field advantage uh, in that, which would give them a slight leg up. Then, I, you know, when you look down the rest of the line, I think it's it's a bit of a toss up uh, for the 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 other licenses both on both sides on SME and the retail side, but I think those in my mind are the ones that have the the biggest chance. And I apologize, you're hearing, uh, I, I guess, one of the benefits of COVID being controlled in Singapore is that uh, folks are building again. So for, for folks listening, if you're, you are hearing construction in the background. So I apologize. But uh, I guess it's a good thing that folks are back to work. Yes, and to your point, you brought up something interesting earlier where, where you know, I remembered one of the first things that stood out to me when I came here to Singapore was you, you go to any train station and there's, you know, four, five, six, seven ATM machines for every various institution. And, uh, and they simply don't talk to one another. And the, the irony of this is, I, I think, and, and again, you've alluded to this before, but, but let me ask you more directly. Does the market have the capacity to absorb additional market participants in, in, in this? And because, again, I agree with you completely on, on the competitive level of this. But, you know, there has been pushback on some of these models on, you know, to your point, on the retail side where... Uh, you know, is there really a business model underneath that that can be supported? And on the SME side, completely agree with you. And I think post-COVID, you're, you, you and I have both heard a lot of discussions regarding the focus of, of regional governments to to jumpstart uh, SMEs and would do anything there. But but here, can the market really absorb five new participants? And, and let's throw Ant in there, you know, where, where you would have potentially a behemoth like that uh, in the middle of it. Can the market really absorb that? Yeah, and, and it's a really good question. If, if that's if that's even possible, I mean, I, I think the the on especially on the retail side. I mean, the, the the products and services offered by the big three banks here in Singapore are, if you would say it in Chinese, are travel dual, meaning they're pretty much all the same. Uh, you know, I, I just recently switched from one bank to another. And hopefully the relationship with the second bank works out better than the one with the first one did because I only have two banks left to work with here in Singapore. Fundamentally. <laughs> but, you know, the 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 difference between the banks, I think, was the ease of onboarding um, with the second bank that I just onboarded with. You know, with the, I, I recently changed my ID number here in Singapore, my national ID number. Um, and. When I spoke to my first bank, I said, look, I need to increase the credit limit on my credit card because it was the first card that I had in Singapore and the credit limit wasn't really feasible for, you know, just the day to day online ordering and things that we do and, and spending as a family. And they said, well, we noticed that your ID has changed. Uh, you're going to have to come to the branch to fill out the forms to change your ID. And I, you know, in a country where they have access to both my old records and my new records, there's really no reason for me to go to a branch, uh, especially in the time of COVID. I mean, that's one element that should be sorted out. And with my new bank, I was able to onboard completely online. I, I still had to wait for a pin to come through the mail. But other than that, you know, I, I'm sitting here with a debit card. I've got the 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 mobile bank account and the internet banking account all set up for me, and I didn't have to visit any branch or talk to anybody, which is very convenient. And I, I think that is really the initial angle that the digital banks will have to play to is the customer service side of things. I mean, if you onboard with a Revolut or a TransferWise, uh, you know, it's very smooth. The KYC happens in a matter of 24 hours, if not 48 hours. Uh, you don't have to meet anybody. Everything comes in the mail. It's very straightforward. Um, but some of these traditional banks, the 
there's a lot of friction in those processes. Now, then the question becomes, and if you're able to capture the individuals, to your point, Frank, is what is the business model that's going to make it profitable to serve them? Uh, you know, what, what we've seen in Hong Kong is the customer acquisition costs, at least initially, in many of the digital banks' journeys have been incredibly high. I mean, you, you had, I, I believe it was Zhong An Bank, ZA Bank, that was offering up to 6% interest. And, you know, that is burning capital to support. There's, there's no way they're breaking even on that. That's a loss leader to acquire customers. Um, you know, what, what are they going to be able to do here in Singapore to be able to sustain that? You know, is the cost... The cost savings that you have by without having a branch network, is that going to enable you to provide enough of a differentiated service, either in terms of the financial returns, uh, you know, high, meaning higher deposit rates or lower lending rates, to make people want to switch? And, and I think that's going to be the big challenge. I think certainly on the, you know, on the commercial side, again, you know, it for us as a company, you know, we make twenty to thirty international transactions every month. And, and those be both incoming and outgoing transactions. And when you start to add up the bank fees on top of that, it becomes very cumbersome. And so we've switched largely to a third-party provider for our cross-border payments. And, and I, I think it's those niches that the digital banks can really play to to capture the market share. But then, yeah, the question is, can, can they either themselves or partner with companies like TransferWise using APIs to to provide products and services at a at a more compelling value proposition, whether that be financially or smooth of trans, ease of transactions that the traditional banks just can't match. So, if you were let's let's have some fun here because you, there's a couple of subtleties to some of the points that you're raising. So, on, on the one hand, let's assume that you and I know who the five winners are. So we know who the two full bank will be, the two wholesale bank or three wholesale bank license winners will be. Um, let's assume that you and I were sitting in front of one of the constituents who didn't get the award, but at the same time, they've got everything else. They have their act together and, and they know what to do. So what advice would we be giving that company in lieu of the award? So option A is they just fold up the tent and say, well, it was, it was a pipe dream. We're not going to be a bank. And, move on. But is there an opportunity for those, because you, you've mentioned two of them, ironically, is there an opportunity um, for the companies who've opted out of getting the license and or who don't get the license where you would say to them, you know what, day two, this is what you need to be thinking about uh, relative to the, the five that won it. You know, what guidance would you give them? Yeah, it's 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 a really good question. And, and I think I kind of separate the companies into two camps. I mean, you have, you have kind of the best of breed companies. So those would be like the transfer wises and transfer wise is fundamentally focused on cross-border remittances and doing that very well. And they've been, you know, of all of the fintechs out there, they're one of the most successful, both uh, in terms of customer reach and profitability. You know, one of the, one of the few companies in the space that's turning a profit consistently um, in that. And so, you know, those best of breed solutions, you don't necessarily need to have a digital bank license to do that. Uh, you know, I don't see, at least in the near term, transfer wise, getting into something like lending or or wanting to hold more customer deposits than they already have. Right. I mean, they're, they're somewhat limited by the Payment Services Act in terms of how much they can actually have um how, how much Singapore individuals or companies can have stored in TransferWise, but you know, fundamentally, not having a digital bank license doesn't really impact their day-to-day -day business. I think where it gets a little bit more interesting are the companies that have larger aspirations to to do things around that. So, we're just going back to Grab and Singtel, even though we think that 
they have a, a good opportunity to get one of the licenses. Let's just suppose that they don't, that they don't get the license. I mean, largely Grab has pulled together a financial ecosystem to be able to handle that. I mean, acquiring a robo-advisor um, uh, a, couple, a couple of months ago uh, to kind of build out its wealth management side, uh, you know, they, they can't be a bank in terms of the traditional sense of, you know, I'm putting all my deposits there, I'm depositing my salary there, I'm borrowing money from them. It's not going to be as streamlined as that. But through partnerships, they should be able to accomplish much of what they're looking to do. And for a consumer, uh, you know, whether a company is a digital bank or not really shouldn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if you're providing them a service, if you're doing that service in-house or if you've essentially partnered with somebody to provide the lending or the wealth management or whatever the case may be, it should be a seamless experience for the consumer. And, and I think that's the most important thing on this. But in, in general, I think like many of the things in the fintech space, we, we tend to get distracted by shiny objects, whether that be blockchain or AI or digital bank licenses. And we view it as, you know, if you don't have a value proposition that leverages one of these technologies or one of these licenses, then you're going to fail. But there are plenty of examples of companies that have done very well without these. Uh, you know, TransferWise, again, going back to that, don't have a digital bank license, not built on blockchain, but they're still killing it in the market, right? So I, I think there is we need to be realistic that some people are going to get the license immediately. Some people aren't. And maybe, you know, the, the MAS in the next couple of years lets out more licenses on both the SME and the, uh, on the retail side. But there's still plenty of opportunity for fintech companies to either, you know, stick to their knitting and focus on uh, what's, what's made them strong, like the transferwises that are focused pretty much solely on cross-border remittances or the ability to work with partners or, you know, in fact, make acquisitions, M&A in the space to build out the value proposition and, and have that um, larger footprint in the market. Why don't we use that as a, 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 as a uh, concluding question? Because to, to your point, one of the anomalies that we've seen is um, from a capital standpoint, and again, I'm going to oversimplify this, but you know, there could be upwards of four to six and a half billion dollars of capital that are going to need to be uh, obtained for those five constituents to, at a minimum, even meet the regulatory requirements, you know, that they that they have to post. And with that, you know, you have investors looking at this saying to the degree that they have the capital to deploy, you know, their, their pushback has been whether or not the, mo the business model is actually viable. But you know, with that, you know, we, we aren't seeing a flurry of, of successful capital raising in this market. It seems that the market right now, COVID aside, uh, is waiting to, to, to see how this settles out. So to your point, you know, do you what, what do you envision? Let's assume they, they announce the awards next week and we just pick that as an arbitrary date. Um, what is what is your gut telling you is going to be the response by investors, given that you're going to have these five constituents going out effectively at the same time, raising money for the effectively the exact same mandate, you know, more or less. And then B, behind that, what do you see in terms of M&A activity in the region? Because this could suck the oxygen out of the room um, where, you know, as, as you know, some some of these, you look at Grab Singtel, there's a pretty wide remit in terms of what that bank will be doing. I mean, we haven't even gotten into InsureTech and, and all the other infrastructure propositions that they're talking about. Uh, so what do you envision in terms of capital raising, in terms of institutional support for the ask 
that's going to be there? And then B, what do you see behind that in terms of M&A uh, for some of the smaller constituents who, who um, aren't going to get on the radar of, of those counterparts uh, to invest in them as they would have originally wanted? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I think when we when we look at the capital side of things, I mean, that, that is a pretty steep, um, uh, well, it's not a cliff, but a, a hill that any of the digital bank applicants need to need to climb is within that first couple of years, the capital uh, needs to go, the registered capital needs to go way up uh, in order to get the full license. So I think, you know, certainly that's going to be a challenge, but at the same time, the investors have their, can have their cake and eat it too, because they can see, I mean, the, the first hurdle of course is getting the license. And then, you know, within the first 12 months, it'll be pretty clear who is, I wouldn't say successful, but who is moving in the right direction. Uh, and, and so with that in mind, then investors can pick and choose who they, which horse they want to bet on. So I think within, you know, the digital banking space, these things are too, too large to ignore, um, especially if it's clear that the digital banks are being successful. And I, I think attracting capital for them won't be a challenge once we get to that point, uh, once we have a little bit more visibility into uh, how, how successful they're going to be. But then on the flip side, yeah, I would, I would certainly see, I mean, M&A over the past year in the Singapore fintech past, uh, Singapore fintech market and indeed Asia, you know, including Australia and Hong Kong has been relatively robust in terms of acquisitions. I mean, we've seen a lot with eight securities in Hong Kong, Bento here in Singapore, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it, it may not be huge deals, uh, but I think there are a lot of smaller fintechs here that, you know, have the appropriate licenses or have the appropriate IP to help build out a more robust value proposition. And so if you are a fintech that's missing lending or missing wealth management or missing uh, securities trading, whatever the case may be, you know, there are entities out there that would be easy acquisitions to to kind of build out that value proposition. So I think we'll, we'll definitely see a little bit more of that uh, in the wake of the digital bank licenses being being allocated. Good deal. And on that note, Zen and I, I you know, you and I, I could keep you on, the, on, on this for hours, given what's there. So selfishly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask that we do talk when, when they do make the announcement this year on the awards. I think it'd be good to kind of go through and tree through all the different optionality events that could be there relative to, to who they've decided in. And I think it's going to be really, really fascinating to see um, some of the market consequences from that and, and uh, as a function of that. And, you know, for example, if Ant isn't one of the winners, uh, that's going to say an enormous amount uh, on the number front. So I would love to have you again before year end. And uh, as always, it's, a, it's always a fun and a hoot to have you on the show. Definitely. Thanks for having me, Frank, and look forward to chatting once the uh, licenses are allocated. Perfect. Zenon, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's edition of Unhedged. And as Zenon alluded to, at a minimum, you're going to hear from us uh, very quickly after the Singapore FinTech Festival. So thank you all for your attention and time. And please be self and health, uh, safe and healthy in this COVID environment. Zenon, thank you again. 